0: This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK8 and also by TREKFAN. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help move us toward the Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by
1: Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM.
2: How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for warp.
1: Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway.
2: Let's
0: go. Welcome everyone to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones and with me this week, as she is every week from just down south a bit, it's Kate Walsh. Hey, Kate. How's winter in Australia treating you this week?
2: Oh, well, winter's a bit brisk this year, and um, I'm not that uh, comfortable with the cold. How about you, Chris? How's it going over in Japan?
0: Well, it's not winter here, that's for sure. It's we're having the hot summer days of Tokyo summer, so I'm really not enjoying that very much. You know, what I'd really like to do is get out in space. You know, just like Captain Archer,
2: escape the weather completely.
0: That's exactly what I want to do, Kate. And and you know, there's no better ship to do that on than the nx one. And as I've said on here before, and certainly I've discussed many times on the Ready Room, I love the nx one. You know, as a designer myself, the creative challenge of giving the series a ship that had a retro look while at the same time was accessible to us in our modern view of technology really captured my interest and That's why I'm really thrilled that we're joined today by the man who actually designed the NX-01 and whose hand can be seen all across Star Trek and beyond. It's none other than Doug Drexler. Doug, thank you so much for taking some time out of your morning to talk with us today.
1: Oh, the the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. An NX fan, huh? Yay! I
0: am an (laughs) NX-01 fan. I really am. I've always there loved that ship. There de-
1: are some people who are really dedicated to hate the NX. There I'm are. I'm sure you know. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that as time goes by, I find more and more people who love the ship. And when the, f- when the show first came on the air, the Internet was just kind of hitting with chat boards and things like that. And I had never had the experience of instantly connecting with people. And, <laughs> man, <laughs> I went on the Internet after Enterprise aired and people, there were people who were just ripping me to shreds, dragging me through broken glass with my just fly down.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, people have been harsh on it.
1: Yeah, I, it's really interesting. I And and I found if you followed Star Trek from the very beginning, which I have, um, anytime there was a new show, the fans always hated it. Mm-hmm. Because it was always viewed as being a replacement for their beloved show that they would rather have go on, and so each new show, nobody when TNG premiered, they hated Captain Picard. Most people don't remember that they literally hated Picard. They hated the Enterprise D. They hated everything about it. And that, and you know, looking back, well, I the first time I watched it, I knew that the show was special. Uh, and, but it, and it took it a couple of years to get its legs. We know it's a classic now. Same with Deep Space Nine. When I was on Deep Space Nine, when that show premiered, people hated it. They hated it. They would blame me when I would talk to people about it. It was my fault. I did How many people tell me every day that they think that that's probably one of the best Star Treks that was done?
2: People are very passionate about Star Trek, though, Doug. And um, the thing that I've noticed with Enterprise in particular is that as as time goes on, um, more and more fans seem to appreciate it much more than they did in its first run
1: well one thing that's interesting that's happening is now you're getting people who were too young to be a part of uh, any anger or upset or had no connections to anything before they may have started with enterprise enterprise may have been their first star trek and to them it's the best one and and that goes with all the design work and stuff that goes in it too a lot of work went into the nx and and uh I wouldn't. I don't think it would be too far off to say that more time was spent designing the NX than any other ship. I was the primary designer, of course. Herman Zimmerman, our amazing production designer, uh, is the overall in charge. And then, of course, we have you know Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, who really are the, our bosses. Our job is to do something that they like. You know, it's nice if uh, there's something. Uh, even if you're working for someone who has very specific ideas about uh, what something should look like or how it should be, there's always a, a very strong part of the person who's realizing it, and and, and sometimes it, you're really kind of like the focus puller on a camera. You know, if Burm, if if, if uh, Rick and uh, Brandon have ideas about which direction they want to go in, you focus that vision for them. Uh, but. Uh, Having been on Star Trek for so many years, and I think I was on Star Trek for about seventeen years, and 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 good, good, good friends with Mike Okuda, and you know, the, the art department was a home for me. Uh, we, it, it was such a collaborative effort. Mike and I went over every bit of the ship and talked about what what it what how it functioned and how it worked and why it looked the way it did, and there really is a very strong evolutionary thing going on. I mean, it really makes... First of all, when we, when we started the show, I, we really pushed for the early Matt Jeffries design with, with the sphere on the front. We thought that fans would really love that. As a matter of fact, I know that they really would have loved it. But the studio wasn't willing to sacrifice the saucer. The saucer is so iconic mm. of Star Trek. I, I can totally get that. I totally understand it. Right. But the idea of losing the secondary hull... Having the saucer and just the engines, it 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 makes perfect sense. You're going to start from that base basic shape. You know you've got to have the primary hull. That's that's where you live, you eat. The bridge is there. Uh, To add a more expanded engineering section later on, which is something I did with the NX refit, which is really something that I I don't know if you've seen it or not. You may have the NX refit design. That that is something people say, did you always have that in mind? Yes. That was in mind from day one. Uh, While designing the ship, I regularly took a secondary hull and placed it underneath to make sure that if and when we ever did it, it would balance nicely. But I think the beauty of the NX and the NX refit is that you could look at it and you could see it growing towards the Constitution class. And for me... One of the great things about Star Trek is the, that it it hangs together so well, continuity-wise, through story, tapestry of the story, and also the technology. Of course, until recently, that is. <laughs> you, know, okay. you can just throw <laughs> all that into garbage. We don't need that anymore. We've destroyed everything. I, and, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm going to say I'm not criticizing J.J. Abrams, but I am also. It's it's like a love-hate thing. I'm not a big fan of of, of uh, the new movies. And that's fine. Uh, you know, not everyone is required to love every version of Star Trek. And and I, and I do run into people who think that any Star Trek is good Star Trek, and I don't agree with that. But uh, th- they made an alternate timeline so they could go anywhere they wanted. They didn't want to be hogtied by everything that had gone on before because that's very difficult to work with. I know it was very difficult on all the various TV shows mm-hmm. to have the Star Trek encyclopedia that had... you. You couldn't break these rules. Here they are. I know it was frustrating to the writers, but it—I I think that it's just the because it, it, it's really what they did in the JJ It It's kind of lazy, really, to <laughs> bite the bullet, fellas. Yeah, you know, yeah, get I in agree. with the you know, <laughs> with the tapestry and and deal with it. You know, instead yeah. of throwing it all out. And, oh, uh, yeah. I'll just shut up right now. There. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well as you talk about the NX-1 I one reason I love the ship is that it looks and feels to me like something that we would build like we as people today we would build it you know the the 1701-D you know it's a great starship but it feels so far away like when would we ever be able maybe in the 24th century, I don't know, probably not at the pace we're going right now. When would we be able to build anything like that? But the Annexa 1 feels like something that 100 years from now we might actually build. And aesthetically and the way the interiors are and with the submarine inspiration, it feels real to me. So when I watch the show and when I'm on that ship, I can feel like I'm there more easily than... I can feel like I'm on the 1701D.
1: That, and that was always the plan. Uh, That was always on Herman's mind. And we all strove for that. uh, As far as the technology goes, uh, all of us in the art department, you know, and, and that, you know, and that includes, you know, Michael Kuda and Rick Sternbach, who wasn't on Enterprise, but, you know, has always been an integral part of the show and its technology. Because the show was so much closer to, present day, it was important that it look like, very carefully look like an extrapolation of where we are right now, so that people today look at it and, and they're willing to buy it as technology. The thing that is really interesting about the original series um, is that it's, for instance, the interfaces on the bridge, they're very they don't look like anything else. They just look like that era of Star Trek, all the gumdrops and stuff like that that light up on the consoles, and 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 that really was a, uh, a genius on Matt Jeffrey's part uh, doing that, because it doesn't become dated. I think that Enterprise, because it is so close to today, it's okay that it slightly look like it's dated to us, and it just advanced from where we are now. But the enterprise is so far in the future that you don't want it to look like 2000 to, uh, and, and, and the year 2000, you know? Uh, and the reason that happened, really, and, and what we really owe that to, is the fact they had no money. They had no money on the original series. If they had had money, they probably would have bought, bought a lot of army surplus stuff. And put it on, and then, you know what I mean? Because they didn't have money, mm-hmm. they had to go a route that was really inexpensive but very clever. And that was all those gumdrop lights. And you could look at them today and still buy that this is could be the future. Who knows? It's the the style of, of TOS. Uh, I still look at it and I'm totally blown away by it.
2: Doug, when I look at the um, NX-01, the submarine inspiration for that particular ship is something that's so distinctive. Do you remember where that idea first came from?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that living on a submarine and living on a spaceship has always been closely related and people often think very much of it like a submarine. Uh, I, I think that in early discussions of what the ship would look like uh, with Herman and Rick and 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 Brannon, the submarine, the idea that the NX was more like a submarine compared to the aircraft carrier that was the Enterprise-D. And I think that this mm-hmm. was really the starting point for it, something that was smaller, more compact. And, and of course, the, uh, Star Trek has always had a good relationship with uh, the Navy. The Navy's fascinated by Star Trek. Uh, you know, this is a funny story. I don't mean to get too far off the, bat, uh, off the track here, but when I was on Deep Space Nine, you know, Michael Dorn uh, is a pilot. Right. And uh, he made some friends, military and naval friends, and they flew him out to one of the aircraft carriers and landed him on the deck of the aircraft carrier, and they greeted him with a, you know, there was like a band and all the sailors lined up and stuff like that. And they were all excited. And, and, and Michael's, you know, steps out and feels very proud of himself. And the first guy he meets puts his hand out, shakes his hand, and the first thing the guy says to Dorn is, do you know Doug Drexler? Ha, 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 ha. so that's awesome how did i get off onto that sorry sorry (laughs) we were talking about submarines and um, (laughs) you know having been a makeup artist for three years on next generation i really know that cast i knew all of them from all the other shows but i was closest to the next generation cast because when you're a makeup artist you're living with them basically, and not only are you living with them, you're kind of their mom, you know if their nose is runny, you wipe their nose for them if they ha- if they're too shiny, you take <laughs> take the shine down <laughs> you know so uh Dorn and I still uh, when I see him at a convention, he used to he used to love my name drexler 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 Drexler, and he would has that voice you know, and he would every time he would see me, he would let out these he would bark my name. He always thought it was a great Klingon name. And I told that to Ira Bear on Deep Space Nine, and I ended up with my own Klingon.
2: You were the son of Martok, wow. weren't That's you? That's right, see, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a Klingon as well. You know, uh, I had fun on every single show, and I never got tired of it for one minute.
2: And, of course, Doug, you were involved in the makeup for the uh, fan-favorite episode, The Inner Light.
1: Yeah, I was. I mean, that makeup was designed by Mike Westmore. Mike Mike sculpted it, he had all the hair work done. My job was to come in and put the makeup on Patrick Stewart, uh which was huge fun and i mean i had I had seen Patrick every day and we, we talked and stuff like that, but it isn't until you put a makeup on someone that it there creates a connection, a bond that's unlike anything else. It's really weird because um you know we did Dick Tracy as well, where we had a lot of actors who were basically our prisoners. And, you know, high-powered actors are used to getting their way, but all of a sudden they're in the makeup chair and you belong to me now. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a certain amount of resistance to that. They don't, uh, the fact that I'm going to take this guy at 2 a.m., get him out of his bed, wash him off with cold alcohol and throw him in a chair freezing cold and start gluing rubber on his face, and I'm going to tell him when he could eat, what he could eat, you know, don't touch that, stay away from that. They, they kind of uh, resent you. In the beginning uh and and I've had a lot of actors who literally acted like they hated me once we got started, but there's something that happens um as time goes on i I think it's called was it the stockholm syndrome? is that what it is where you're held
2: prisoner, yeah, and then eventually yeah. and you start to feel sympathy for the person that held you prisoner, yeah,
1: yeah, you start to right. fall in love with your captor <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's. That's what happens to Chicote in *Year of Hell*. You see that? We so. actually did an episode on that. We named the episode Chicote's Stockholm
1: Syndrome." <laughs> yeah, well, it, it it totally works in makeup too, you know. So to to work with Patrick and glue rubber to this guy's head, <laughs> it, it it's it it really is wonderful in a way. You know, you become sort of a, a different kind of family to someone.
0: Well, I have to say the the work on that was really impressive. You did a great job because when the remastered came out, and of course they put that episode on the sampler disc, even before season one came out, I was really impressed at the makeup work, you know, knowing when it was done and seeing it in HD and you guys not knowing at the time that it would ever be shown in HD. And, and I'm accustomed to here in Japan, we have uh NHK does this drama show that's been going on for decades now. And of course they have to do a lot of makeup prosthetics because it's a historical drama. And, you know, I see how that's done, and they have lots of money that they throw at the show, but you can still, you know, you can kind of see the lines. But the inner light, even in HD, I mean, it holds up so beautifully.
1: Well, Mike, any success that that makeup uh, has really is a result of Mike Westmore, who, see, I'm going to go off on a tangent here again, is uh, from the, I don't know how much you know about the Westmore family. Mike Westmore is... Right now, probably the most famous Westmore going, but the Westmores literally invented Hollywood makeup right uh, yeah, yeah I mean it started back you know with his his uncles and there was Purse Westmore and Frank Westmore, and there was a whole and, and there was a time when there was a Westmore, and we're talking like you know in the thirties or forties that there was a Westmore who was the head of every makeup department in Hollywood didn't matter which one you went to Warner Brothers was purse I think. Paramount was Frank, and, and and those were the days when studios had departments. Like right now, the, the, the studios are, they, they bring people in from all over. It's kind of, they'll hire, you know, it's kind of like sports does sometimes with, with football players and stuff like that. They'll get that guy because they can and this, this guy over here. Whether or not that's better than it was, I'm not so sure. I You know, there was the day when Paramount Pictures had an art department and handled all the movies uh, and then you basically you develop a department that's hand-picked people that you keep you know. but the interesting thing about makeup artists back then I know this and this is off the beaten path here is that um, a guy these makeup artists used to have high-powered actors who wouldn't let anyone else do their makeup you know like Betty Davis she had her makeup guy so if you had an issue, if you were the studio head, you had an issue with Frank Westmore. You weren't going to get rid of him because you'd lose half your actors. They wouldn't, they wouldn't work with anyone else. So in a way, the, in those days, makeup artists could be almost as powerful as the studio head. It's really wacky. Okay, I'll return the show back to Star Trek.
0: <laughs> That's really, it's fascinating. It fascinating. Is look in there while we're talking about TNG and the makeup one thing that I did want to ask you is that you know you've been involved in every Star Trek series and if we include the TOS remastered project you really have been involved in every Star Trek series and all four of the TNG films plus the director's edition of motion picture and you've put so much creative energy into the franchise uh, apart from putting makeup on Patrick Stewart here you know what are some of the other most Satisfying or rewarding moments for you?
1: Well, the whole thing really is crazy because I was an original fan and watched the show in 1966 when it premiered and actually watched the entire first season in black and white. We didn't even have a color TV.
0: Oh, wow. Which
1: I have to say is something everyone should try because. Oh, God, here I go again. Um, (laughs) In those days, you had, as a DP on a show, you had to shoot the show to look good in color and black and white because the majority of people had a black and white television. So today, they just shoot for color. If you take one of these contemporary shows and you turn the color off, the image isn't as Beautifully laid out as far as light and dark and contrast and stuff like that. Right. If you go to yeah. Star Trek, and you turn the color off, the original Star Trek, the the image is gorgeous in black and white. It's really interesting. But so anyway, yeah, I was an original fan. Could I have ever imagined that I'd be, have worked on Star Trek, and especially to the extent that I did? No. that I think the show was ever going to come back? Uh, I don't know. When a convention scene started happening, and I was at the very first Star Trek convention in New York City. I think it was like 1972. Gene Roddenberry ran the projector. (laughs) (laughs) I think they expected 200 people, and like 2,000 people showed up. I think at that point, we started to get the idea that fans had power. And, I mean, today on the Internet, you could go write a cranky letter and someone at the studio might read it. But back then, to get the attention of the studios, you really had to work at it. And Star Trek fans back then were very militant and very organized. And uh, when when they started having conventions that had 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people, studio was like taking notice. What the hell's going on here? You know? So I think at that point, probably we we had an idea that maybe it would be possible. And I think that Gene Roddenberry always kind of had that in the back of his mind. He knew that the fans had a lot of power, and he actually used that to his advantage. Uh, I know that uh, during the second season, they were going to cancel Star Trek, and there was a huge Save Star Trek campaign, which I was a part of. I mean, B. Joe Trimble started it. I remember getting a letter from B. Joe Trimble about writing letters, and I ended up in the newspaper myself, and I was, what, I guess I was uh, 14 at the time, 14 years old, Uh, and and so Gene realized the the power of fans and and used them all the way, you know, up to the first movie, And he was always very grateful for it. I think in, in the, um, the, uh, the the that sequence in the motion picture where they're on the wreck deck It's mostly made up of fans that he brought in as a thank you. Right. Yeah. 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 And and you know Denise That's Okuda really cool. is one of them. She's in a uniform on the wreck uh-huh. deck. <laughs> it, it, it's a great experience to feel like you've actually lived on a starship. Which, well, uh, I certainly have that feeling. You know, I used to sleep in sick bay <laughs> on the Enterprise D. <laughs> I got yelled at, too. <laughs> <laughs> but what's most exciting, I, you know, I, there's so many amazing moments for me on Star Trek, and I miss working on it a lot. And that is saying a lot, because I've worked on some really amazing stuff since then. I mean, I'm very, very, very proud to have worked on Battlestar Galactica with Gary Hutzel, who was a visual effects supervisor on Trek. And I, and I think that Galactica is one of the best science fiction shows ever, and, and really is a descendant of Star yeah. Trek. Uh, yeah. Most people don't even really realize it, but uh, many of us from Star Trek went over to Galactica, and Ron Moore was in the head, and it was everything that we had learned up to that point.
0: And a reaction to the next generation in a way, I think. Right? I mean, it's in terms of the writing, it's kind of like breaking out of some of the box. Absolutely. You know, there, they were in Stuff that you would TMG. never have
1: seen on Star Trek. I mean, uh, right. I know a, a lot of writers felt... Um, like their hands were tied a little bit because Gene wanted everyone, he wanted it to be one big happy fleet. And so a lot of the things that I think that Ron might have done on Star Trek, but respected it too much to break the, the rules. You see, instead of changing Star Trek like some directors we know, <laughs> he went off and he finally did what he wanted to do on, a, on another show, you know, instead of peeing in a pool. <laughs> JJ, I hope you're listening. Like he would even care what I have to say.
0: Kate, is that our show title right there? (laughs) Pete.
2: Doug, as you said, you you have been a fan from the start with TOS. I I guess I'm wondering. um, I know that you had the opportunity to work on design aspects of both Trials and Tribulations and In a Mirror, Darkly, and I'm wondering what that experience was like for you. That was that was
1: a high watermark for people like me and Mike Okuda, who just, you know, that show is in our DNA. And uh, I felt like I had studied for those episodes from, you know, like 13 years old, I because I I was a huge Matt Jeffries fan. I studied everything that he did. I knew everything about this ship and the design. And, and then when I got to know Matt, Mike and I would spend hours with Matt just talking about his design ethic and why he did what he did. And, to get to recreate those sets, oh my God, what a stupendous, amazing experience that was! And you know, at the time, it's a lot easier now because if I want to get frame grabs, I just put the shell on my computer and I just you know capture it. But back then, we didn't have that. We had, we had computers, but we were working. We didn't have DVDs yet. I mean, I had to use VHSs and rewind the tape and go back and grab sections off of it, and they weren't very high quality either. But uh, I, we, we literally. It, it was such a time trip to work on that stuff because here are these guys from the original series that I idolized and loved so much and now I really had to put my head in the same place their head was at at the time they were doing it and and there were times when I would feel that I was you know in 1965 designing those things with Matt Jeffries to to, to feel that, uh, uh, that the process you know uh, and, and it really goes to it really, everything about it, there's so many subtle things that if you just brought someone in who had, didn't have a love affair with it, they would, it, it, would, it might have looked close, but there'd be little things that would make you feel like... And you could see it on some fan films, and there's some really good ones, which I've helped with some of them, but for instance, on the bridge, the layouts of the buttons, you can't just take a bunch of you know gummy drop you know buttons and just stick them where you think they should go. Matt had if you look at the, sh- the bridge, you'll see that everything has a very distinctive pattern that that uh, is consistent throughout the bridge, and that goes for the you know the, the blinky panels and which I did every blinky panel on that bridge. I we, we didn't have the entire bridge when we did trials and tribulations, but when I started laying them out. Uh, we're such big fans, and uh, Mike said, just do the whole bridge. Do the whole thing. We'll, we'll use it eventually. And so I, I sweated the details on those blinky panels like you wouldn't believe. I mean, every one is... And, 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 and you know, it's kind of funny. Those, the graphics that, I've, that I did uh, set the foundation for a lot of the fan films that are coming out because eventually what happened was that uh, you know, shows like Star Trek Continues, which I think is probably the best one right now, but I was also involved with new voyages in the very beginning, and those graphics on those bridges, both of those bridges and Farragut, I think, as well, they're mine. They came from trials and tribulations. So, I, you know, it, it's to to look at that stuff, and that you you know when something isn't quite right, it's like it bumps for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 actually, I, I probably shouldn't you know belabor this too much, and I've talked about it before, but the remasters of the original series, which uh, I think looks spectacular, but I, I'm not crazy about some of the visual effects in them. They're well done. They're well done, but they look like they were done today. And I think that, yes, that's what they were trying to do. They're trying to look like today, but I think that that may have, for me, that was a, a wrong decision. I think that what you really need to do with those shots is. Make them look like original series shots with, with the same. You're, you're doing it with newer technology. You could do it cleaner, you can make it look better, but there's certain uh, charming elements to the original visual effects that too often are looked at by people who come in as mistakes. And they say, oh, well, we're going to fix that. Like, for instance, if you watch the original series, because they didn't have a lot of room on stage, with that 11-and-a-half-foot model, uh, uh, they sometimes would have to curve the track. And uh, often the Enterprise would look like it's flying kind of catty-corner. You know, the caddy mm-hmm. is just, it's not traveling down its center line. All starships after the original series travel cleanly down their center line. You look at the original series, it'll almost be like an airplane kind of going off catty-corner. I love that. To me, it was a flight characteristic of the show. You know, are, are you familiar? Well, of course, everyone's familiar with early Doctor Who or, or Red Dwarf. I love Red Dwarf. I'm a big mm-hmm. Red Dwarf fan. Um,
0: yeah, I used to watch Red Dwarf every Friday Oh, my night. God.
1: I, I love them, and they're still making yeah. them, which is the greatest thing. But look, if someone had the idea to go back to Red Dwarf and redo all those kind of cheesy effects, it would ruin it. And I don't see it as cheese. It, it's a part right. of the show's personality. You don't want to clean that stuff up. Maybe you want to, if you're clever enough, you could take what they did and and upgrade it and make it look clean and, 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 and nicer looking. But you don't want to cut the heart out of it. And I feel like uh, uh, some, there are times in the remastered where it'll go from a shot that was shot in 1967 to a shot of the ship, that to me looks like it was done, you know, in the 21st century. And there's a bump in the show. I get pulled out. And and I've talked about this before. And um, and I and I'm not disrespecting. I'm just saying that when people come in and they do a show, everyone has a different idea about what the design ethic should be. Not everyone's going to agree on it. This is just my observation. I there. There, there was a lot of stuff in the remasters. I think is is stunning, and and some of the matte paintings, just like are stupendous, uh, and, and and we even used some of them in uh, the Star Trek Ships of the Line calendar. That's how much I like them. You know, but the Enterprise is, it's diff- It's it's a different story. Uh, it, it's you have to be careful if you're going to upgrade William Shatner. He'd better still be William Shatner when you're done. <laughs> I'm crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me. I can it's 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 really insane. What's wrong with me?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Doug, we noticed a few years ago that you posted um some graphics on your blog which is, is now in hiatus but um of the NX-01 refit and it was also in the ship's of the Lion calendar. And um one thing about it is that it bore a much closer resemblance to the TOS-style ship than the Akira class which The NX-01 was originally based on. I guess I'm curious as to whether, and this is something that other fans have speculated on too, whether this is a design that we might have seen if we were to have gotten a fifth series of Enterprise.
1: It it was a possibility and uh, and I know I had even spoken with Manny Cotto about the possibility of it and told him that we'd always been ready to do that. The trouble is, is that we never got far enough along to actually put it into the works. Uh, unfortunately. Uh I think it would have been a terrific addition to the show and that would have been a great way to move into the Romulan wars. I mean, the 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 thing is you go out, you go out there for the first four years and you get your ass handed to you. Vulcans aren't helping you very much. (laughs) They you know the Vulcans they (laughs) don't mind telling us what to do, but they're not gonna help us in, in any way. They're just gonna give us a hard time. I always had you know, Brandon, if you're listening, I hope you won't mind me saying this. I, I, I would have handled the Vulcans differently. Hey, we were talking about the refit, and here I go off onto the Vulcans. Well, that's it. Just-
2: <laughs> How would you have handled the Vulcans, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that at the end of first
1: contact, they would have just said, you guys have taken an important first step. We're pleased to meet you, but we're going now. And when you're smart enough, you'll find us again. And I wouldn't have even had aliens for the first year or two. It would have just been us. I mean, the challenges of traveling through space alone with other human beings is pretty interesting. I, I think that y- you might have colonies that have been massacred by some strange warrior race that no one has ever seen before. You know, uh, But I would have had the Vulcans. To me, Gene Roddenberry's Vulcans are, were very wise. And Gene always saw them that way. And it was always something that we could learn from them. And uh, in Enterprise, the Vulcans tend to be busybodies and always telling us what to do. And they came and they stayed. You know, it was like the relative who wouldn't leave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I have to go to bed. Go home. But uh, uh, I, I would So
0: the Vulcans just walking around in your kitchen in their robe. Yeah, yeah. They go and they help that's, themselves, that's you know. <laughs>
2: thing that wouldn't leave.
0: Companies coming over, they, they tear off a little bit of the robe. They wrap it around their heads so the neighbors won't see their pointed ears. I hear yeah. they
2: like to watch I Love Lucy as well. Falcons love I Love oh, Lucy. Oh, yes. But they don't laugh at
1: it. They just sit and look at it. But inside they're laughing.
0: <laughs> they also like the Three Stooges because, you know, oh, the hairstyles. man. Did
1: you see the... To get really, old. yeah, you know, you're right. Mo, Mo, I think is Vulcan. Huh? That's right. Then, then there's the planet of the Larrys, where everyone's yeah. got the coolest skirt on a bowling ball. And uh, boy, how did we get off to that, huh? <laughs> you know, one thing that, that I, I built an approval model of the NX, and I think that this is probably the first. It may have very well have been the first time that a computer was used for design to that extent in a television art department. Um, so we were building our, our foam core model of the Enterprise in the art department and could literally show brandon and Rick animations of the ship. Uh, once it was approved, it went to Foundation Imaging, where they did a, an even more amazing version of my model. Uh, they had to. Sp- they had to keep all the details. Everything, you know, was the same as the approval model. But one thing that did happen, which I, I, I wish hadn't happened, was um, the approval model, which was in TV Guide. There was a TV Guide that had a poster of it. If you look at it, you'll see that the portholes are probably about four or five percent larger than they were on the series, and that was done on purpose to make the ship seem smaller. When you make the portholes smaller, the ship all of a sudden looks larger. And the idea always was is that they're kind of vulnerable out there. It's just a little dinky ship. So that, that's something that I wish hadn't changed. Another thing that I wish had, I would, like to, I would have liked the ship to appear brighter. Uh, there were certain choices that were made. A go- the model is gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. But I would have made the ship look brighter. It tended to be dark and dingy to me often on the show, and a hero show, a hero ship to me should always be bright. Enterprises were always bright. The D was bright. The original series, Enterprise, was bright. This one was kind of a gunmetal, uh, dingy. The, the motion picture tended to, was metallic, but still uh, had a, a, a certain heroic brightness about it. And if I were to change something, it would probably be that would for certain. And I, and with the NX refit, I did that. The surface of the NX refit is like 25% closer to the original series enterprise. A lot of people feel that the original series enterprise, that the NX looks more futuristic than the original series enterprise. I do not agree with that.
0: No, I don't think so either.
1: Yeah. I, to me, it looks, uh, uh, I mean, you could almost see the wells. You know what I mean? Yeah. The TOS enterprise is very sleek. There's very little surface detail. You don't have a lot of grid lines and nernies and panels and stuff like that. To me, that's as things get more advanced, they become more simplistic. Look at your iPad. There's not buttons and switches all over it. It's this, you know, someone from 25 years ago would go, Well, what do I do with this? You don't know what to do with it. So to me, the, the Constitution class, which almost is like marine life—it's that beautiful, smooth skin. Uh, I don't even see it as being something that be, was welded together. You know, maybe there was a structure that was, uh, you know, an understructure that may have been something akin to welding. But the way I see it is that the surface of the enterprise is more like a ceramic—that it was almost grown. Maybe it was grown. Why does it have to be hammered together? You know, this is the—this is 200 years from now. It should be beyond what—what what seems possible you know um i think that the nx and the NXR, uh uh, like you were saying chris it looks like of the time it it comes from and i've had arguments with fans who don't agree with me at all but hey that's okay not agreeing with me is half the fun right half the fun is finding the stuff that you don't like so you could yell at me (laughs) you know i but i understand that Half the fun is being critical and and feeling like you know it.
0: But I agree, like you say, with the NX-1, you do feel like you can you can see how it's welded together. It it actually feels like it was actually assembled from many many pieces. But then the refit is a really nice progression toward that Constitution class ship where. Just like if you take, say, the Phoenix from First Contact and then you you see the NXO one yes. as we do in the title yep. sequence, you see that progression and then your refit that we never got to see on screen. But uh, the design of it where you added the secondary hall and the nacelles kind of uh, arching up more is a great progression. And it really fills in the blank very well.
1: The, um, uh, all of the television stuff really hangs together, like I said in continuity and evolution and look. And uh, I mean, we always were guided by what they did on the original series and everything we did, we filtered through that. I think that that was one of the great strengths of, 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 of Star Trek, uh, pre Abrams, Star Trek.
0: Let's let's not get Doug started on the Abrams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> you
1: know. Hey, they had a model of the NX in the last movie. So that's
2: pretty, that's cool. true. Doug, you also have spoken about the idea of having um, a detachable engineering section where they could upgrade that and kind of slip it in. Yeah, so I thought that was an interesting concept. Well, I mean, the
1: idea, and we're talking the NX as well as the the NX refit. Uh, My idea was that uh, as the ship was out in space, they were getting almost real-time data on everything that was happening on the ship so you could be redesigning and upgrading and adjusting and building a new engineering section back on earth or in orbit and have it ready when the ship returns and that the engineering department it's like the works in a drawer that that whole section can be pulled out the back of the saucer and a new one slid in and you're ready to go again so th- there, there's very little downtime. Things are ready for you when you get there, and and that's the way the refit would have worked as well.
0: That's really really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I I just it it's years of thinking about starships with with my friend Mike Okuda. Mm-hmm. You know that leads to ideas like that. There, there were a lot of uh, cool. things about the NX that were never realized that that weren't used. I mean, um, uh, we had we had designed into it. Uh, uh, ro- robotic arms to do work on the outside of the ship. Why send a guy out in a spacesuit if you don't have to? That there were cars that traveled the the uh, tracks that looked like grids, like window washing cars on a giant building. You know, uh, we had an episode called I think Minefield where they sent um, uh, one of our characters out lugging a heavy toolbox where he walked halfway across mm-hmm. the hull, which to me was made our people look dumb. You know, I mean, did we really go out there so unprepared? that we have to walk all... No, first of all, there are hatches everywhere. There was a hatch nearby that they could have used, but he could have taken one of the cars, utility cars, that rides the tracks to the spot, which would have been really visually interesting. But I understand what they wanted to make it look like it was dangerous and difficult and scary, so they had him walk. Personally, I think it makes him look dumb. But, be that as it may...
0: (laughs) So just to wrap up here today, Doug, we did want to ask you one last question, and that's about the campaign for a fifth season of Enterprise on Netflix. And I know you've been an avid supporter of this movement. Is there anything you can tell us about how that's progressing and if there's anything that our listeners can do to support that and and make it actually happen?
1: Well, I mean, for something like that to happen, we need to get the attention of someone like Netflix. Uh, I don't think that the studio would ever do Enterprise again on their own. They, because, they're always going to want to try something different and try something new because, look, it's like... It's, it, basically, it's the, what I saw with Galactica Blood and Chrome. Them doing a new series of Galactica is pretty far-fetched because it's like what we talked about before. If you're the head of the network and you're responsible for this money... You already know how a Battlestar Galactica is going to do rating-wise because you did it for those years. You know. So you could either invest a lot of money in something that is already a known quantity or you could take a shot at something brand new that might go through the roof. So I I understand that logic. However, if Netflix likes Enterprise, they want to do Enterprise – and they're willing to foot the bill, the studio would be happy to do it as well. So I think that it is a possibility. I mean, look at what happened with Arrested Development, right? That was a show that was canceled, Netflix put mm-hmm. it back. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's really interesting what's going on, as a matter of fact. Um, up, up until uh, 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 this year, anything that we worked on that was on the internet first, we couldn't submit for an Emmy.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: But now we can. Blood and Chrome, we Uh were able to submit Blood and Chrome, even though it was on Internet first before they entered on television, we were able to submit that for a visual effects Emmy.
0: Right, right. And I
1: really think it's because of Netflix and House of Cards. If Netflix is going to put all that money into into a TV series, they want to be sure that the TV Academy is going to recognize them because all the networks want to get Emmys. And I think it's because of Netflix and House of Cards that we were able to do that.
0: So you think that CBS might be interested in doing it if Netflix were going to foot the bill?
1: Yeah, I think they absolutely would. If Netflix is like, look, we're going to take responsibility for this and pay for it, foot the bill. We think there's real interest here because we've seen how many thousands of people on the Internet are, de- are clamoring for this. Uh, I, I believe it is possible. I, I've spoken to pl- many people who, who think it's not possible. I think it, it, it's very possible. Will it happen? I don't know. But uh, the, the other thing is that this campaign is also good for fandom and Star Trek in general because it keeps everyone engaged Yeah. Uh, and talking about it and enjoying it. And, and Star Trek fans like to take ownership in, in, in things. It was when Star Trek came back after years of being canceled, the fans felt that was their show. They helped make it happen. If Enterprise came back, it would be the same thing. Fans would feel invested in it. Uh, I think it's really great. But, you know, uh, but we'll see what happens. What, who knows?
0: Yeah, most definitely. It could be. Well, Doug, thanks so much for taking time out of your morning. I know we've kept you for almost an hour here, so we really appreciate it. But before we let you go, can you tell everyone where to find you if they'd like to follow your work or talk to you? Where are you available?
1: Well, I have a pretty strong Facebook presence if you're on Facebook, just type in Doug Drexler. I post lots of pictures of uh, stuff I'm working on, and, and right now I'm, I'm Kate knows I'm restoring uh, a prop. Uh, I don't know how many people remember my favorite Martian with Ray Walston. I loved that show mm-hmm. as a kid, and I identified with Uncle Martin because he was he was marooned on this on Earth, and I felt that way as a kid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I. And he had his spaceship, which he crashed, was hidden in Bill Bixby's garage. And So growing up, that was always, and it became a joke, you know, about my spaceship in the garage. And uh, so I, I came across a Hollywood prop guy who had built Uncle Martin's ship about 20 years ago, and it was in Men in Black 2 in the background. And it had fallen on some hard times, and I managed to procure it, and it's in my garage. And over my hiatus, I'd been restoring Uncle Martin's ship. So if you go to Facebook, you can see that. But I interact with people on Facebook, and uh, I got lots of pictures.
2: And come on over. You've also got your Enterprise Prime's on Netflix campaign page there too?
1: Yes, that's, that's on Facebook as well. So you can check that out. And Jen DeSalle and uh, Robert Bolivar uh, have really, are really the people who have put the most time and effort into uh, the uh, campaign. And I'm really indebted to those guys. Uh, really resourceful people, and, uh, and Jen DeSalle is really quite a talented CG artist. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. They're, they're, when it comes to flying spaceships and stuff, I find it tends to be guys who do that, who learn how to do it and come to the VFX houses. And it was the same with makeup. Usually, uh, you know, uh, creatures and aliens and stuff like that were really, for some reason, attracted guys more. But th- that's kind of changing of late. Thank goodness. I, why it happened, I don't know. Uh, you know, were we in that period of time, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where girls were supposed to be girls, and, and and it was very defined, and now we've broken through that. I mean, I went to the, it's fantastic. When I was a kid, there weren't that many. There, I didn't know any geek girls. Uh, but the science fiction, fantasy, it's totally changed. You could go to Comic Con, and 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 there's just as many gals there as there are guys. It's really great. But uh, I Look, I blathered it off in a whole nother direction. I don't even remember what I was talking about
2: anymore. <laughs> I think we're talking about J.J. Abrams films.
1: Oh! <laughs> no, don't, don't get that going I'm working on my time machine. I shouldn't talk about this project, but I have this time machine, and I'm going to go back and stop him.
2: You know, Doug, I hear that your very favourite scene in the 2009 movie was the destruction of Vulcan.
1: Uh, You know something? The first time I watched the movie, I didn't get that far. (laughs) We was screening at Paramount,
2: and Rod, I'm sorry,
1: Rod invited me to a screening, and uh, I eventually did see the entire movie, but I only got as far as the Starfleet cadet who yelled, I can't wait to kick some Romulan ass, and I was like, oh (laughs) my God, Gene Roddenberry must be spinning like a rotisserie (laughs) in his grave. That was so horrifying to me, and, that oh, was, I, and I said, you know what, I don't have to sit here and be upset, I'm going to go home, and I went home, Dorothy knew there was something wrong when I, when I returned home like a half hour later, <laughs> I, 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 did, I did watch it, and I will say, look, there's no doubt, it's a terrific action film, but I like my Star Trek, I like action too, but Star Trek, for me, needs to be more thoughtful. And I feel like yeah, the last two movies way. are a little more cotton candy, and yes, there, it has brought in you know more people watching Star Trek, but I do hope that we get back to television, where science fiction is really thrives, uh, where you could tell you could have lots of stories and lots of ideas. Science fiction is about ideas; it's not about car chases right so we'll keep our fingers crossed
0: exactly so everyone go and check out doug's pages on facebook and doug thanks again for joining us today
1: thank you chris thank you kate thank you doug maybe you'll have me back sometime oh most definitely
0: wow kate that was really fun talking with doug about enterprise and star trek and and all aspects of the franchise but you know even this isn't all that we've been talking about on Trek.fm this week. So, everyone, here are a few things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. Rick Fontaine. Just something about kind of a wise-cracking, smart-ass, you know, 60s rat packer seemed to fit with this group on Deep Space Nine. The Ready Room. Explorers. It didn't cost that much, they just... They just sent Avery down to Home Depot, <laughs> and they just let Avery build the whole set. Uh, that was all done in real time. I can imagine. They that. shot it as Avery I can, was building. I can the see set. that now, decade. Star Trek Online.
1: You know, whilst Tom's officers were all in seven of nine skin tight cat suits. To the journey. The hydrogen.
0: Just the sheer fact of how they tied up Seven and Tuvok was like, okay, this is not just handcuffs. Like these this like these people know <laughs> how to tie people up. Like that's like like it's their job. Commentary, Trek Stars.
2: The shrinking man. You're gonna go from one seventh to maybe just shy of zero, but then the next day, poof, you turn into zero. Warp five.
1: An enterprise sampler
2: the studio didn't really want to go that far back in terms of a prequel, that we do eventually get the chance to see that and know that this is really where the writers' hearts were.
0: Trek news and views.
1: Voyager season seven.
0: This is the thing. I know the Doctor is created in the image of Zimmerman and Zimmerman's bold and blah, blah, blah. But surely to God, if you was creating an alter ego of yourself, you would give yourself hair. Literary treks. TNG ghosts. You pull things out one by one, one by one, and then the computer keeps bringing it down until you've got like four or five left. And then you stick them on a pad and you go have a staff meeting about it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. Some days we even have two shows for you, and you'll find links to all the ways to listen to them over at Trek.fm slash PD for podcast directory. You can get them on iTunes, Stitcher, Tunein, Windows, Xbox, Zune, just about anything you can imagine. You can catch us there. Now, Kate, before we tell everyone where to contact us, We've had a few people who have done it already, and I believe we have one new review on iTunes this week.
2: We do. We've had a review from someone in the US iTunes store, uh, a listener by the name of Epps in the House, who's um, commented that they've actually really enjoyed listening to our show and that in doing so it's actually energized them to watch the series again and perhaps to give it a bit of a closer look than they had before. So that's really encouraging. And thank you for that review.
0: That's fantastic. And Epps in the House, I have to say, was one of my favorite bands from the 1980s. And if you would also like to share your thoughts with us on Enterprise, just like Epps in the House did, you can do it in a variety of ways. First, you can go to trek.fm/slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to Kate and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail, and we'd love to hear your voice. You can do that by going to the website. And along the right-hand side of any page, you'll see a tab that says Send Voicemail. Just click that tab, and a box will appear. You can use your webcam's microphone to record a message and you can upload it to us as an MP3 file right there on the site. If you'd like to join in a bigger discussion, you can go to trek.fm slash forums. We have forums there. And you can talk to other listeners, the Trek film crew. And there's a section for Warp 5. And there's one for Enterprise. So join us over there. If you're on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you'll always find us on Twitter, tweeting away about Star Trek all the time under username trek.fm. Now, Kate, what if people would like to look you up personally? Where should they go?
2: If they'd like to look me up personally, the best way to find me is going to be on Twitter at great ok. If you'd like to follow me and would like to engage in any discussion whatsoever about enterprise or the show, just send me an app, reply, and I'll follow you back. And we can have a chat.
0: Excellent. And if you'd like to find me, I'm on Twitter as well. My username is c brian jones. that's the letter C, and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username. And you'll also find me elsewhere on the network every week on two shows that I co-host with Matthew Rushing. First, there's The Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine, very much in the way we talk about Enterprise here, and Literary Treks, where we talk about Star Trek books and comics. And we very frequently interview all of the wonderful authors who are cont- Continuing the Prime Universe of Star Trek, which of course will make Doug very happy, in novel form. So catch me over there. And you'll also find me every week on The Ready Room, where we talk about all five live action Star Trek series. You'll find me there, joined by various hosts from across the network, as well as other people from throughout the world of Star Trek, as we talk about Star Trek, uh, both a mix of humor and serious discussion. So check that show out as well. Kate, also, before we let everyone go, we would like to ask everyone to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors is very important to helping us bring Warp 5 to you every week. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS, that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog website, portfolio, online store, or really anything you can imagine. So go create your own space today. I promise you're going to love it. I've been a Squarespace user for six years myself. I love the platform. You will too. Go try it for free for 14 days. Go to squarespace.com and use offer code TREK8 to get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And we thank Squarespace for their support of Warp 5 and Trek FM. Also, please visit trekfan.org. Now, I love to talk about Star Trek. Kate, you do. Of course, we can tell Doug really loves to talk about Star Trek. But if we all just sit around and talk about Star Trek all the time, we're never going to get to that future. We're never going to build that NX-01. We're never going to do the refit of the NX-01. We're not even going to get to the Abrams verse. So put your love for Star Trek into action and something that's going to help us get to that future. You'll collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, you'll complete real life mission objectives, and you'll win great prizes along the way. And you can do it all by visiting trekfan.org. Solve that first puzzle, take the next step on your adventure, and we really thank TrekFan for their support of TrekFM as well. And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, we have a way for you to do that as well. Go to trek.fm slash donate. We have eight new alien themed badges as a thank you for your contribution, and they're perfect for your shirt, for your bag, or for your dress uniform. They're 44mm badges with original illustration by Tobuushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And you can get those as well as art prints that we have now as well. They're beautiful A5 size art prints of these aliens. And there are a number of different donation options for you to choose from. So go over to donate, and your donations help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring this programming to you every week.
2: So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5.